I just have that effect on people. Hey, good morning and welcome to Kingsway. It's good to have you here with us today. We're in a series called Be Bold. Because safe is boring. We're going through the book of Acts. We're only going to make it 10 chapters in. Highly recommend you read the rest of the book. Though basically, you could summarize this whole thing we're doing, be bold, safe is boring, with this idea. As we're studying the book of Acts, we're asking this question. What does it mean to love like Jesus? And we see the New Testament church struggling with that. And the reason that we're doing this is because we believe love is a bold thing. And it's a hard thing. And it's not a safe thing. And sooner or later, if you're going to love somebody, you're going to have to put yourself out there. And when you do, you might just get hurt. In fact, some of you know this because you've been hurt over and over and over again. That's why you're here. And so what we're doing is saying, God, how do we love? How do we love like you? What does it mean to love like you? Today, we're going to take a look at three stories, three stories. We're covering a lot of ground. I don't normally like to cover as much ground as we're covering, but we're going to see love from a church leadership standpoint. We're going to see love from inside the church standpoint and love from outside the church standpoint. I think we'll get a good snippet of really what it means to walk in faithfulness to Christ as a believer in Jesus Christ. So here's a saying we have here at Kingsway. You may have heard this throughout the series or maybe new if you're visiting with us today. We welcome you. Here's the saying. Kingsway, a place where the lost and the broken are transformed by the love of Christ. That's our goal. That's what we want to become. So if you're visiting with us today and you leave and you say, that place did not love me, we want to hear from you because we want to get better. We want to love better. But if you're part of this thing, this is the goal. How do we make this happen? And I love the way that, that we're told that Jesus did this by a guy named John, John the Apostle. He's also called the disciple whom Jesus loved. So here's what he says about Jesus. This comes from John chapter 1, verse 14, in the English Standard Version, ESV, different than the version we usually use. It says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, let's just walk through this real quick, because what we have here is John, the Apostle John's vision statement for what Jesus came to do, the way he came to love. So number one, the word, that's Jesus, literally became flesh. This is a really big deal, because in heaven, Jesus is spirit and worshiped. He is bowed down to. He speaks and the angels do. The Bible tells us that everything that's been made has been made through Jesus. He's the creator, the sustainer. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's a really big deal. But he came down here to dwell among us. And the word used here for dwelt is really tabernacled. Now, if you don't know your Old Testament, that might not mean anything to you. But in the Old Testament, when God led the Israelites out of captivity, he led them into the, to the desert place and then later into the promised land, he met with them in a tabernacle. It was this little tent of meeting, and Moses would go out and he'd represent the people, and on their behalf, he would go and meet with God. And here's what's interesting. Now this word is being used, and it's saying, no longer does one person, a pastor or a priest or a dead saint, no longer does a person go represent us to Jesus or to God. Now God has come down to meet with us. We can go to God because God has come to us. This is the gospel message. And he came among us. What does it mean to love if not to enter somebody else's pain? So just recently I was, uh, I got to take part in God answering a prayer. A few years ago we did a series and I, and I told you I'm praying for a specific person in my life for God to redeem and restore a relationship. And um, there's not been a lot of communication. Talked a couple times in the last six years, really only a couple times in the last 12 years or so. 
And um, recently, this person who was one of my friends growing up, his wife called me. And I've only talked to her a couple times. He, he married her long after I knew him when we were growing up together. So I hardly know her at all. But she called me because he told her to call me because she had a theological question and he didn't know how to answer it. And so I'm on the phone with one of my close friends growing up's wife. And, and all these people in her life are going through some really hard things. And she's grasping for how to get a handle on God. Where is God? What's God doing? Does he care? Has he lost power or has he lost love? Because it just looks like he just doesn't care about the stuff going on in our everyday lives. And I was able to take her back here and say, now see, we, we worship a Savior who entered our pain. He knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like uh, uh, to have those that would, should have been worshiping him, should have been on his team, get off his team. And then we follow a God, his Father, who knows what it's like to lose a child. I think that was all she needed. John wants us to know this is what love looks like. But then he closes with this important thing. Full of grace and truth. Now here's the thing. Some of you are going to love the rest of this message. You're going to hate the rest of this message. Because grace and truth is hard. But Jesus isn't mostly grace or mostly truth. He's all grace and all truth. And really what grace and truth means here for us at Kingsway means welcoming people as they are and then teaching them about Jesus. That's what we're trying to get to. We're going to embrace everybody as they are. We're not asking anybody to change anything as they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We're just meeting you where you are and we're saying, look, our goal is to help you conform to the likeness of Christ. And that may mean something different for you than it does for me. What it means is we're all pursuing him together. And so we find that Jesus is full on, 100% grace, 100% truth. And none of us do this well. We tend to be like a pendulum swing. We tend to be like one or the other. But if one is missing, everything falls apart. Here's a bad example. So I was a youth minister for 10 years, and I remember this one day, uh, my wife was out doing some things, so I got my small group of guys together, and we went to the church, and since I had a key, I could get in any room, and we decided to play laser tag in a church that was about three-fourths the size of this building. It was awesome. It was wonderful, and I put them all on one team and me on another, because I had keys. I could go anywhere I want and sneak attack them, and I did. And so they chased me upstairs, and above our gym where we met, we had, there was a, a video room at the top, and there was a soffit that went around the room, like this thing that sticks out, in case you don't know what a soffit is. And so I went into the room, and I'm trying to shoot at them, but there's like all of them out there, and I can't get any of them. It's kind of like a, a standoff. You know, it's like, okay, somebody has to come out, but as soon as somebody moves, they're done. So I get this grandiose idea. I go in the room, and one of my students is in there. He's an intern, and he's making a video for me. And I say, what do I do? I say, what if you run out there and start shooting him? And he's like, no, I go to this video. I'm like, okay. And uh, I said, I know, I know. What if I climb out over the video booth, climb onto the soffit, walk around the soffit over to the basketball hoop? What if I jump out onto the bar that hangs out from the wall of the basketball hoop? James Bond style. I'll hang off the bar. I'll drop to the ground. I'll roll just like a scene in a movie. I'll come up behind them because they're focusing at the door, and I'll shoot them all behind and win the game. And he looks at me and refuses to speak the truth. And he says, that's a great idea. And then he goes further. Oh, I'll help you. I'll distract them at the door by making them think that you're still here. Thank you for being complicit in my stupidity. 
So I try this. I climb over the soundboard, over the wall that's there, climb down, kind of shimmy onto the soffit. It's mostly drywall. I'm not sure how it held me. I was a little bit lighter then. Walked around, got to the basketball hoop, and at this point, it's dawning on me, I'm not sure this is the smartest thing I've ever done. But I really want to win. I don't know if any of you guys in the room know what I'm talking about, right? So I jump out, and um, I don't know. I'm not really good at science. There's a reason I became a preacher. And I never thought about the fact that when I jump and I grab this bar, my momentum is going this way. And as I jumped out, I realized the bar was significantly bigger than my actual hands. Now, if I had Michael Jordan hands, this plan might have worked. But when I grabbed the bar and my weight started pulling me out, I just started to fall. And I slammed down onto the ground, landing on my heels, my tush, I don't know what else to call it, and my hand slammed down into the ground, immediately jarred everything upwards, and pain started screaming out of my mouth as I yelled, time out, time out, you can't kill me. (laughs) There's a priority to things going on here. I got up and I couldn't feel my wrists and my hands, but I was too bold to tell anybody. So we finished the game, and later when I went home, my wife said, you should probably go to the doctor. Nah, I'm okay. She's like, Matt, you can't move your wrists. They're swollen and purple. I went to the uh, urgent care emergency room. I don't remember what I went to. And it turns out I broke my wrist. I'd just like to say I finished the game. Did you pick up on that part? (laughs) Here's the thing. Here's the thing. The funniest part of the whole thing, I had to lead worship for the entire church the next day. I told him, you just have to cast in this position so I can still make chords out of my fingers. I led worship. Everybody's like, man, you were so into worship this morning. Your face was so worshipful. I'm like, I was me going... It hurts so bad. (laughs) Okay, moving on. Here's the point of the story. I wish my friend would have spoken the truth to me. I wish my friend would have told me what I needed to hear. I wish my friend would have lovingly said, Matt, that's the dumbest idea you've come up with lately. I've had a lot of them. He would have saved me a lot of heartache and a lot of pain. And see, grace and truth is like that. Some of you in here, the way that God has made you, the way God has made you, you're good at speaking the truth. And we need people like you. But you're not good at doing it in grace. And so what happens is you become kind of like a a rubber band. It's a very illustration for today. A rubber band is only useful if you pull on both sides. If you pull only on the truth side of the rubber band, you can just keep walking that way forever. If you pull only on the grace side of the rubber band, you end up walking that way forever. The only way this thing becomes effective is if it has both. And some of you by nature are truth people, so you're good at at telling things as they are, or at least as you see them. But some of you may be a little bit more mercy gifted or passive. You tend to be all grace all the time, and you never get around to being full of truth. Consequently, people you know and people you love are hurting and suffering because you're not looking at them and saying, that is the dumbest thing you've ever done. And what I want to do now is look at these three situations in the book of Acts where we see this beautiful tension. And what we're going to do is just stop and learn some things along the way. This is like the anti-sermon for what I normally do because I'm going to make a lot of small little points along the way instead of driving home one major point. The major point is grace and truth, but we're going to make a lot of small points. And my hope is some of you, something in here is going to jump out and say, this is what I need to do with my spouse. I need to tell the truth. I'm not telling the truth. Or this is what I need to do with my spouse. I need to be more loving and more gracious. Or this is what I need to do with my kids. Honestly, I'm letting them do something that's ruining their life and I'm not saying anything. Or all I do is say things. 
I need to figure out how to care for them more. And my hope by the end is we'll walk like this. So now let's open up to the book of Acts, chapter 5. And I got to tell a quick backstory. What I'm going to do is tell a lot of story and then read certain parts we want to dig in. The book of Acts launches with Jesus going up into heaven and he tells the disciples, the Holy Spirit's going to be in you. I want you to go and wait for the Holy Spirit to be in you. So they go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit literally uh, enters into them. And then they go out and they begin to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And thousands of people come to faith in Jesus. Shortly after that, we get to Acts chapters 3 and 4. And what happens is Peter and John go to the temple one day. This is relevant for today. Peter and John go to the temple one day and they heal a man who's been crippled for over 40 years. And when they do, people start listening, but the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders get jealous and get upset. And so they arrest Peter and John, throw him in jail, then they bring him out and try him. They say, stop talking about Jesus. And the disciples, Peter and John, look at them and say, we can't do that. We can't obey you over God. We must obey God no matter the consequences. We must do that. So when we get to Acts chapter 5, where we are today, what we see is Peter and John picking up where that story left off. They got interrupted by a weird story we talked about last week. Now we're back in Acts chapter 5, and Peter and John are doing this again. They're out teaching about Jesus, and they get arrested. And I love this. When they get arrested, they get arrested by the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, and the full council's brought there, and they're angry, and they're living, and they put them in prison, and they bring them back out, and they're trying them. And they say, we told you to stop talking about that name. What's interesting about that? What name won't they say? Jesus. They won't even say it. His name so offensive, they won't even get it out of their mouth. Now, does that sound at all like American culture today? We'll talk about God. We'll talk about Buddha. We'll talk about spirituality. We could talk about Allah. We could talk about politics. We can talk about Trump or Hillary or whoever it is you like or don't like. We could talk about a lot of things, but do not mention that name. But Peter and John and the apostles, they're like, we can't listen to you. In fact, Here's part of that conversation. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Does that sound like grace or truth? Come on. Sounds like a whole lot of truth. And you're going, this might not be the smartest thing you ever did, guys. This is the group who threw you in prison last time and threatened you not to do this, or they would do something worse to you. Peter and John aren't afraid to be bold and speak the truth. Now, today we would say, that's not very PC. Come on, that's, that's not very, you're not very, very kind or nice. And there's an important point I'm going to drive over and over and over in this message. Peter and John are speaking simply the truth, not the truth as they see it. There's a big difference, okay, because some of you really struggle with this. Not the truth as they believe it to be. The truth as clearly evidenced, evidenced out in front of everybody. 
The, the Sanhedrin held a kangaroo court for Jesus. They literally arrested him at night when nobody else was around on Passover weekend. They literally held a trial when everybody else was in bed and nobody else was paying attention. They literally were the ones who set up Pontius Pilate. Even though Pontius Pilate wanted to let him go, they pressed for a crucifixion. It really did happen. They really did do this. It isn't just my opinion, your opinion. They're standing on fact, okay? This is huge for you truthers. But look at the very next thing that they say. Verse 31. Then God put him, this is Jesus, in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. And he did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. Truth, you killed him. Grace, there's still hope. It's not too late. God took the man you crucified and he resurrected him and made him in his honor at the right hand. He's now king and savior. He's prince and savior, literally reigning under the father. And if you'll simply acknowledge you blew it and turn him, he'll forgive you. Grace, truth. Look at the next thing he says. Verse 32. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. Well, they get pretty livid, as you can imagine. They don't like being shamed publicly, and they certainly don't like being told that they're wrong. You know anybody else like that? And before you look at your kids or your wife or your parents, why don't you look in the mirror? When was the last time somebody told you you were wrong and you liked it? Mine was yesterday. But my wife was wrong. I was actually right. I'm just joking. Guys, it's never easy being told you're wrong, but part of being honest is telling people when they're wrong. And part of being a Christian is being humble enough to accept it. I've been wrong many times, even as the pastor of this church. You've heard some of those. And some people love me enough to say it, and sometimes my hard heart wouldn't accept it. And over time, the Lord moved. Part of being a believer is being humble enough to admit when you're wrong. That's where repentance comes from. But what happens next is they kick Peter and John out of the room, and they are ready to kill them. Kill them. They've gone from arresting, we're going to do worse, so that's it. Let's just stop this whole thing. But a guy stands up, Gamaliel, and he's a, a really important figure in the New Testament. I don't have time to go into his whole story. But he stands up, and he gives us powerful testimony. He says, look, guys, you remember this uprising that took place? And you remember the Roman squash that? Yeah. Do you remember this uprising took place? Remember the Roman squash that? Yeah. And here's the whole point. He says, look, if you aren't careful here, you could end up fighting against God. And he literally says, my suggestion, guys is let it go. If this is not from God, then God will make sure this goes away. If this is from God, you might find yourself fighting against God. And even though Gamaliel is not a believer, we are never told he becomes a Christian. And trust me, if Gamaliel, one of the two most famous rabbis of the day, had become a believer, everybody would have known. He wasn't speaking on authority as like a hidden believer in the Sanhedrin. He was simply believing this isn't really from God. He'll squash it. But there's something powerful even in his prophecy, even though he's predicting what will happen. And he's right. It doesn't squash. In fact, today, there's roughly 2 billion believers because of these kinds of stories. So what does happen next is verse 40. Look at verse 40. So the others accepted his advice. They called in the apostles and they had them flogged. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Now, we read those verses, and we move on to what happens next, and it's amazing. We're going to look at that in a second, but what we miss is what happened. Do you see what they did to him? What did they do to him? They flogged him. Now, real quick, how many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ? 
Okay. I've got two pictures. The second one is from the movie. I'm warning you. I'll warn you beforehand. It's not easy to look at. And so if you have a weak stomach, I'll say, now's the time to close your eyes. Let's look at the first picture. A flogging could take place in many ways, but the most common way that a flogging took place was by something called the cat of nine tails. It was called that because there are nine pieces of rope that come off of the handle, so they called it that because it looked like a tail. The Romans had perfected this torture tool. These little knots here would often have uh, rock or lead or something thick and heavy in them, and here at the tips would be like glass or sharp stone or sometimes chips of bone, something that would tear the flesh. Now, according to Jewish law, they could not whip somebody more than 40 times. So they usually did 40 minus 1, 39 times, usually just in case they counted wrong, they could stay within the law. They were very legalistic to their credit, I guess. This time it probably helped people. But it, what you, they would do with the cat of nine tails is your body would be, don't put up the next picture yet, your body would be tied to some sort of pole either standing or sometimes lower, kneeling. Either way was acceptable, usually standing so that the back was exposed. And then the Roman soldier would literally take this cat of nine tails and these pieces of thick, heavy material would smash into the skin, creating bruises. And these sharp pieces then would catch and drag tearing flesh. Sometimes a flogging was so brutal by the Romans that people died. Now, the Romans didn't have the rule about 40 we don't know how many lashes they received. We know it was no more than 40. We don't know. But this little word just gets thrown in the middle of the text, and we just move on like it's no big deal, and it is a very big deal. And we don't know how many apostles that day were flogged. You can imagine as they bring Peter out, and they've got John or others in jail, or maybe they're watching, and you can hear Peter crying out in pain, and they just keep going. So I'm going to put up the other picture. Wait, close your eyes if you don't want to see it. Here's how Mel Gibson portrayed this in The Passion of the Christ. You see the Roman soldier with the cat of nine tails and Jesus. Go ahead and take the picture away. Keep your eyes closed. Just go on to a different slide. I don't care which one. There you go. This is no small matter. What happened to the apostles that day is a big deal because, and this is a huge takeaway for you, friends. This is huge. A love that is full of grace and truth is a costly love. The reason Christians today have a bad rep, and you'll know this. If you're visiting and you don't believe in Jesus, the reason Christians today have a bad rep is because they speak a lot of truth, but their lives don't reflect the glory of the love of God. These men sacrificed their bodies so that everybody else could know what you're doing is leading to eternal damnation. And I love you so much, I must tell you, no matter what you do to me. And I would just suggest to you today, if you're not willing to sacrifice your life, your body, your resources... For the glory of God, then keep your mouth shut when it comes to truth because you're hurting the rest of us. And our testimony about Jesus. But look at what happens next. Verse 41. The apostles left the high council rejoicing. What? Who does that? This is awesome, John. We got to be just like Jesus today. 
They beat us. They whipped us. They did exactly what us what they did to Jesus. High fives. Oh, ow, no. We'll save that one for later. They left the high council rejoicing that God counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And we often wonder if God has abandoned us because life is hard. They don't even ask that question because they're more concerned about what's going on in God's plan than in their own plan. This is why Jesus says, you don't even want to come after me. Trust me, some of you need to leave probably this church today. I don't want you to leave, but you may need to leave today because Jesus says you need to consider the cost. Being a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, it's expensive, it's costly, it's painful, it's hard, it's not easy. You will be mocked, you will be persecuted, things will happen. You will be asked and required at times by God to sacrifice your time, your energy, your stuff, whatever it is, but it's all for his glory, it's all for his kingdom, it's all for his purposes, and the disciples considered it in honor to do that. And then look at the next verse. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. Now that's bold. You flog me, you whip me, you put me in prison, fine, see you tomorrow. Could you imagine being at home that day and Peter... Can I come in? I want to tell you about Jesus. Didn't they just flood? Yeah, see, scars. Can I tell you about why they did that? Can I tell you about how they did it to him first? Let's talk. That's bold. That's a boldness I don't even know because honestly, I, I don't, I struggle with it. However, I know this, that if you're going to have a love full of grace and truth, it's going to rejoice, rejoice in the opportunity to be faithful. It means you're going to get excited, like, God, I just get to respond. Like, I literally get to take the next step with you. I get to tell this person about Jesus, but that might cost me my friendship. But, God, I get to do this. God, I literally get to show up and serve these people that nobody else will touch or serve. Thank you, God, for this opportunity because I love you. It's a phenomenal, wonderful opportunity. Thank you, God, for considering me worthy of this opportunity. Thank you, God. Oh, it's going to be hard. I know. I know. Isn't that great? This could be painful at times. Yep. Isn't that wonderful? God thought I could handle this. Do you know how many times I've gone to bed at night begging God, God, would you release me from the burden of, of leading a large church? Because it's hard. And it's painful, and it costs time and energy. And God, would you just choose somebody else? I'll be okay with that. Let me go back to, you know, being somebody else on a staff and, and not have to carry the weight sometimes that I feel. And God's like, Matt, it's not a weight. It's an honor. And I'm like, I know. I'm an idiot, and I'm selfish. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. God, would you, like, help me? Because, you know, I would have picked different kids than mine. <laughs> it's an honor, Matt. I know. When they crawl up on my lap and say, Daddy, it's awesome. It's just the rest of the time. I'm making a joke, but seriously, it's an honor. So now let me tell you what happens next, and I'm going to read it to you, but what happens next is the church moves on. So now we move, that's what happens in church leadership when we live in grace and truth boldly. But here's what happens in the church when we live in grace and truth boldly. Look at, I got to, let me look at the clock, man. I got to move. Okay, chapter six, verse one. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. <gasps> Not in a church. Must have been only in their day. Here's what the rumbling is about. 
The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were, be- widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So apparently, we have a Meals on Wheels program. Widows in that day didn't have the care that widows in our day do. So they created a program to feed and care for the widows, except for the Greek-speaking widows, who are basically Gentile converts, most likely. They're going, this isn't fair. This isn't right. These Jewish, Hebrew-speaking ones are getting more attention. I want more attention. Amen. Thank you for the timing. And <laughs> Verse 2. So the 12, that's the apostles, they called a meeting of all the believers and they said, we apostles need to spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Wow, pastor, that doesn't sound very loving at all. That just sounds cruel and harsh. But it's the what? It's the truth. What's the nugget? What's the principle for us to read and take away here? Imagine what would have happened in the New Testament church if Peter and John stopped going around being flogged and telling people about Jesus, but instead focused all their attention making sure widows got food. What would have happened to the gospel? It would have stopped advancing. The truth of the matter is the widows and their needs are distracting from the work and the mission of the church. The other side of that, the grace of that says, but somebody has to care for these widows. We can't just ignore them. And I'll tell you, every growing church in America today struggles with the same tension, even if it's a different program or ministry. Because we can't stop advancing the gospel. We can't. We have to constantly change things culturally here so that we're reaching those that we aren't reaching. But in changing it, things are not happening sometimes internally and people start going, man, nobody showed up at the hospital when I needed this and where was that? And there's this counseling issue and nobody really was there to help me or meet my needs. And there's this constant tension. And the reality is church leadership must always focus on those who are still far from God. But we must also create ministries whereby people are being cared for. Look at what happens next. Look at the very next verse. Verse Verse 3, and so brothers, select seven men, it's a good biblical number, who are well respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. So what the apostles did is they started to grow the church, how? By equipping and empowering the believers to do the work of the church. And we see this pattern over and over and over again in the New Testament. Usually church leadership starts a ministry or a program. When it gets too big or too encompassing for them to do, they hand it off to capable men and women, and they go and do the job, and then they move on continuing to lead the church. This is the only way the church can function in grace and truth. The gospel must go out, and it must develop here. It must go out, and it must develop here which is my little push today to say this, a love full of grace and truth never lets the mission fade. Cannot let the mission fade. We must stay focused on those who are still far from God. However, a love full of grace and truth also does God's will, which is not just to reach the lost, but to edify the saved. And I say that Because some of you have been attending Kingsway for a while. Could be a week, could be a year. I met somebody last week. It was like six years. I can't remember the exact, it's been a while. And you've never plugged in. And consequently, the weight of the ministry of the church is falling on everybody else's, somebody else's, my shoulders perhaps. Man, it's not too late to take a next step. Look, if you're just sitting here, you're already convicted like, I need to do my part. 
I just want to encourage you, when you leave here today, walk straight out these doors. There's a table out there. And just fill one of these out and just say, I need to take a next step. It's time for me to go all in with Jesus and get serious about this thing. So we've looked at church leadership. We've looked at tension in the church and how grace and truth plays out as we love and serve each other. But let me look at one more. So what happens next is um, there's this list of seven men. And there's one guy in particular. His name is Stephen. And we don't really know what happens with the other six. But there's one guy, one guy, Stephen, we know what happens next. And it's not necessarily pretty for him, but what happens next is he continues to do phenomenal things, phenomenal things for God. In fact, look at um, chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. And even the priests are converting. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. So now we see this guy, Stephen, he's full of God's grace and power. Notice that, it keeps emphasizing this. He's full of grace and truth. He's got the spirit of God living in him. And now the apostles aren't the only ones doing miracles. Even Stephen is doing miracles. But he's not one of the upper echelon of leadership. He's not one of the apostles. He's just a godly man who's faithful in everyday life doing what God has called him to do. That's why, if you want to live in love and grace... You must do God's will. That's the goal. That's the plan for you. But what happens is the, the, the pressure on Stephen increases. And he ends up at a tense moment where basically he gets arrested and he gets put on trial before the same religious leaders who just flogged Peter and John. Now, what would be the natural thing for you if you just saw me get flogged and you now just got arrested for loving and serving and grace and truth? Would you cower? Would you be timid? Would you back down? Would you run away? Because Stephen doesn't. He stands up and he preaches a very long message. And he walks back through their history. And he walks back to Moses and all these prophets of the Old Testament. And he connects dot after dot and tells them story after story. And then he says this. And I want you to see this. Acts chapter 7 verse 51. Now he's talking to the religious leaders who just did this to Peter and John. You stubborn people. I might not start Monday morning conversations in the office this way. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Well, he's getting better at least. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did and so do you. Is this grace or is this truth? It's truth. And it's like in your face, not politically correct truth. However, what have we already learned about him? He feeds widows. He heals sick people. So we already know this truth that he is speaking that is hard to hear and accept is standing on the foundation of grace. He doesn't just go spouting off because he has an opinion. He speaks a hard to hear truth that's built already on his life that says, I've earned the respect to say this even if you don't want to hear it. Look at what he says next. Verse 52. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus. The Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusations. And they shook their fists at him in rage. 
But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw that the glory and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And then he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over the ears and began shouting, La, 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 we can't hear you. And they rushed at him. And they dragged him out of the city. And they began to throw stones at him. And his accusers took their coats. Sing it. I'll just wait. All right, we're good. And they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll talk about him next week. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed. Okay, ready? We've had a lot of truth. Hear his prayer. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Okay, when was the last time you were wrongly accused, wrongly attacked, wrongly abused? Let me just pause. It's not the focus of my message. I am not talking about like spousal abuse. If your spouse is abusing you, I am not telling you to stay in the home. I'm not telling you to just give grace and ignore it. No, because truth says you got to deal with that. Truth says you need to call the police. Truth says you need to go to shelter and wings. Truth says you need help. It's grace and truth. But notice this. While he's been saying truth, 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 now in front of all of them, while they're throwing stones at him. Imagine this. They're throwing stones at him. He's got to yell loud enough. The stones are about to kill him. He's being pegged by one from the other. And he just yells out, God, don't hold it against them. Wow. Grace and truth. See, the problem for most of us, as I said, is we pull one way or the other. When we pull on truth, we tend to be judgmental and harsh and critical. When we pull on, truth, or on grace, we tend to be passive and overly merciful. We must walk in this tension of grace and truth, loving and serving in a costly way that says, I'm going to give sacrificially of my life so that I have the right to tell you about the one who loves you and wants to save you. But what he's saving you from is the wrath of God. So I'm having this conversation with my boys yesterday. and they're, My boys, are, they're very young, two, six, and seven. Um, sorry, two, five, and six. One day I'll get it right. But anyway, they're getting close. Anyway, and we're having this conversation. Right now, they put everybody in boxes of good and bad. So good people are saved and bad people aren't. And I'm like, guys, it's not that easy. It's, it, I know you're little. You need black and white, but it's not that easy. See, the Bible says we're all bad. We're all bad. And we all need a Savior. And they're looking at me like I'm clueless. So, so I'm a bad person? No, I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm saying you need a Savior. You need Jesus. And so let me, let me say it like this, guys. Everybody was born. Everybody was born. And since that first day of their birth, they have rebelled against God, all of us. Do you ever disobey your mommy and daddy? Yes. Do you ever hit your brother? Yes. So you do things that God doesn't want you to do. Yes. Do you know what that means? 
what? That means that God's anger and God's wrath is coming against you. And their eyes get real big. And he's bigger than daddy. But what happened is Jesus stepped in the middle and God poured out that anger and that wrath on Jesus. And now anybody who believes in Jesus doesn't get the wrath and that anger of God. Instead, they get God's love and his mercy and his grace. And they're looking at me because they didn't know what to do next. I'm like, isn't that awesome? Oh, yeah, that's good, right? Yes. And I don't know where this started. My second son, Levi, uh, I don't know if he learned it from his teachers here at the school or, or my wife because I didn't teach it to him. But he's been interrupting me during prayer. And I've been kind of gauging, like, am I okay with this? Cause he, but he'll say, Daddy, I want to pray. I'm like, okay, let me finish. And then go ahead, Levi. And he'll say, and thank you, God, that you came and died on the cross and you broke your heart so that we didn't have to. And I'm like, man, he's only five, but he gets the gospel. He gets it. It's a hard message, but it's one that we must never stop saying. So with my remaining moments, I just want to do this. I want to give you what I, just three tips, three tips for how to love in grace and truth. Because you may have a troubled child or a fight with a parent or a spouse or somebody at work or a neighbor. And you're like, I don't know what to do here. Well, here's just three tips. So tip number one, when in doubt, do the most gracious thing. What I mean by that is, if you're going to mess up, if you're going to err, err on the side of grace. Because you could come back later and speak truth. Once you've spoken truth, and if it's without grace, it's very difficult to come back and speak grace. If you're going to mess up, if you feel your blood pressure rising, you're getting angry, your face is getting hot, you feel words about to come out of your mouth that are not full of love and mercy, your heart is not to redeem but to punish and attack and criticize and tear down. If that's what you're sensing, then simply bite your tongue, do nothing, be loving and gracious. Pray about it, ask God to change your heart, and then come back later and speak the truth. And in the meantime, let your life win the right to speak the truth. Which leads us to the second thing. Don't be surprised when loving others like Christ. I'm going to read what I wrote. Don't be surprised when loving others like Christ hurts. But do it anyway. Don't be surprised if friends cut off relationships. Don't be surprised if people don't receive it or say thank you. It happens to Jesus all the time. But what happens is as those moments happen to you and people turn their back against you or walk away from you or don't understand or don't receive, what happens is we get calloused. And the more calloused you become, the less gracious you become, the more truthful you become. And so the next time, you don't do it with love and mercy because the love and the mercy part's what makes it hurt. It's the part where you're putting yourself out there to get trampled on. And if you don't do it with the love and the mercy, then it's only the truth, and it's full of judgment and harshness and condemnation. But Jesus says, through Paul, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're speaking a message of hope. So do it anyway and stay in grace. And then number three, number three, I want you to be more willing to speak Bible truths and less your opinion. And here's what that means. If you're saying something and it's truthful to somebody... You better have a Bible verse attached to it, and it better be in context, and you better make sure you're right. I'm not saying use the Bible to judge people or beat people up. No, it's the opposite. But what happens is we start getting something we're uncomfortable with. It's not the way we like it. It's not the way we would have it. Or perhaps it's even morally wrong, but we don't start with love and with mercy and a foundation of honoring and having the chance to honor somebody. We start with judgment and condemnation and truth. 
And what I'm saying to you is, I'm just challenging you to keep your mouth shut if it's only an opinion. If it's a hill not worth dying on, then don't even stand on the hill. You might not even go near the hill. Man, I'm begging you. As it comes to like politics, it's an election year, this is a really big deal. We need to be voting for men or women who will honor Jesus in the office. But for crying out loud, Christians, if you're not speaking about something the Bible speaks about, then don't speak about it. Now, if the Bible speaks on it, speak up. Speak up. Know why you can stand boldly on that issue and don't be afraid of it. When it comes to talking about things you don't like about your neighbors, I don't care if it's their grass or the way they paint their house or don't do whatever, who cares? Well, some of you might put cleanliness next to godliness. The Bible doesn't. Stand on the things the Bible stands on. On the rest, who cares? My friend um, who goes here, his name is Tim Prickett. One day I was frustrated about something and he said to me, Matt, I just don't think it's worth fighting about things that aren't worth dying for. Okay, so here's the question, and here's where I'll close. What does the Bible say is worth dying for? What did Jesus say it was worth dying for? You and me. It's the only thing worth dying for. So if it doesn't involve saving you, and it's not worth dying on that hill. And I love the way the message translation says this about John 1.14 where we started. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And we saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory, the father like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. And he became the thing that died for you. We're going to go into communion right now. And here's my prayer as we go into communion. Don't start wrestling. Just listen. Some of you are natural truthers, okay? And you need grace. Maybe you don't realize how much Jesus paid for you. And so it's easy for you to speak truth that it's hard to give mercy. I want you to spend communion as you take that bread and that juice. I want you to be thankful, thankful. Thank you, God for giving me mercy, and then pray, God, help me to give it to others. Some of you are passive or mercy gifted, whatever it is, and you have a hard time speaking up and being bold and speaking truth. Man, we need both. We need both of you, but you've got to learn to be bold. You've got to learn to open your mouth and not cower back. The men who are leaving and the women who are leaving, they're preparing communion for us, okay? So you don't need to stress. They're not walking out yet. But listen, some of you mercy-gifted people, I'm just asking you right now, as you take that bread and you take that juice, you thank God for his mercy, but you ask him to help you be bold enough to speak the truth in love. And maybe God will bring to mind a name, and this week, if God brings to mind a name, would you just pick up your phone or send an email or schedule a coffee and reach out to that person and say, look, I've been avoiding telling you the truth. I need to talk about this. Or, man, the last time we spoke, I was too harsh, and I really need to apologize because I don't feel like I loved you well. Would you just listen to whatever God tells you right now and then do it before next Sunday? Let me pray for you, and then we'll take you. Father in heaven, I thank you for Jesus. He did this perfectly every time, and I don't even know how he did it, because while I have Jesus living inside me through the Holy Spirit, I seem to mess this up all the time, all the time. I'm often harsher than I need to be or more passive than I need to be. God, I thank you that grace reigns in my life, because while I don't get it right every time, I still lean on you. 
So God, I pray for us today. Bring to mind one name, one person that we need to go to and repent to and then do it different. And give us the boldness, Father, to actually do it different. In Jesus' name.